Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. I'm glad you stopped by. This is Relentless Truth Rewind. I'm actually, for the first time, after recording 72 weeks of episodes and releasing an episode every week, I'm going to take a few weeks off over the Christmas holiday, and I'm going to take this opportunity to replay or rewind several episodes that you, the listener, reacted very positively to. Today is an episode featuring a conversation with my friend, Pastor Charlie Parrish. He's from Foothills Community Church in beautiful Marble Hill, Georgia. I think you're going to like his style. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. So enjoy this episode of Relentless Truth Rewind. We'll be back the second Monday in January with new episodes. I have some exciting episodes planned. See you then. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to johnwarrenmedia.com to learn more about us, about this work, and uh, you can contact us through the contact form there, or you can email me directly at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, it's a treat again today for the third time in uh, just over a month to have my friend, Pastor Charlie Parrish, with us. Charlie is the senior pastor at Foothills Community Church in Georgia. Just uh, he's, he's about uh, an hour's drive north of Atlanta. And uh, we've talked before, and it is, uh, Charlie, it is just a pleasure to have you here again. It's always a privilege uh, to be with you, John. Thank you. I am stuttering through this introduction because we have planned this episode around a very important topic that comes up in discussions that I have with other believers, other Christians, almost daily. And it actually... It's really interesting, as you know, Charlie, it came up uh, even today on a Facebook post by a friend of mine, and it's one that, frankly, is so important that I think for me in my adult life about in the range of 20 to 30 years ago, some limited understanding of these doctrines just unlocked a lot of truth for me, gave me a little better understanding of, of what a lot of scripture is actually teaching. And that those are often called doctrines of grace. Sometimes we reference them as doctrines of predestination or election. Some of those words are used and synonyms are used throughout the New Testament. I always found it baffling and I, I know you well and I know that you have a really good understanding of these doctrines, and you also have pastoral gifts, which I don't. So this is a treat for me to get to kind of walk us through this discussion. But I'm, I'm wondering if you could kick us off with just 
kind of an overview, and then I'm, I'm going to try hard not to interrupt you, and we, we'll reference some scripture here and there, but let's just talk through this because I think it'll be very helpful to the audience. Yes, absolutely. Uh, these doctrines are, are so crucial to the Christian faith, but, but so overlooked at times. And I think through history, we, we've kind of lost the study of the doctrines of grace. It goes back to the Reformation, as you mentioned, uh, the recovering of the gospel. Uh, it goes back also to the sovereignty of God and what we mean when we say God is sovereign. Uh, I once heard R.C. Sproul, he, he said, you know, we would all as believers say that God is sovereign. And sovereign meaning that he is in control of everything. He's over everything. Um, but Sproul went on to say, but when it comes to the, the, the part of salvation, when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, we strip him of his sovereignty and we take it. Uh, so basically the question is, is much like this. You know, when you say a woman is pregnant, as Sproul said again, another example from, from Dr. R.C. Sproul, he said in pregnancy, the woman is either pregnant or she's not. There's no halfway. And in the same way, God is either fully sovereign or he's not at all in the same way. So this is a very, uh, it's a very sensitive topic. Uh, we want to do this with love and grace, and, and we want to submit to Scripture in everything that we do. Not our traditions, not what we've been told about God or thought about God, but what do the Scriptures say about the attribute of God's sovereignty and his providence? And this goes back to topics of discussion, like you mentioned in the outset, the topic of election, the topic of biblical predestination. What do these things actually mean? And sadly, these are topics that are avoided in many studies and many churches today just simply by the, the, the word alone, because they're scary to people. They don't want to think about it. And, and when they are described, most of the time, many times, it's not using Scripture to describe them. It is throwing in our own traditions mm. and our own ways about what they mean. So I think even in this conversation, we've got to submit to the authority of Scripture and let Scripture speak on this and, and not just what we think about it. I'll tell you what I used to do, and I didn't even know I was doing it. I did it innocently, and I see this. I didn't do it innocently. I, I'm ashamed that I didn't learn more about biblical truth uh, much, much earlier in my life, but I'm grateful for God's grace uh, now. And what, I, what I'm referencing is I had a low view of God, even in salvation, and I didn't like some of the doctrines that we're going to talk about today. And I wanted God to be subject to my judgment. And I think that's one of the challenges, and that's kind of what you're getting at. I wonder if you could just talk about this in terms of, since we mentioned predestination, and, and the, that passage in Romans 8 comes to mind, I think it's Romans eight twenty nine that says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then there's this litany, those whom he predestined, he called, and so on. I often heard this referenced as the order of salvation, this doctrine. And I'm wondering if you could just dive in and kind of talk through and feel free to reference other scripture. I don't want to limit us to just this section, but how would you describe these doctrines of grace from a kind of a detailed standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. The, the doctrines of grace, you know, when we look at the doctrines of grace, from a let's start at a humanistic standpoint, because that's when many people uh, enter into this. When we look at salvation, most of the time uh, it is defined as a walk down the aisle 
or reciting a sinner's prayer or something of that nature. It's even in the songs that we sometimes sing, you know, the old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. Yep. And so we pride ourselves a lot on human decision and what we've done. And, you know, if we would only do this, then then we would give our lives to Christ. And you and I even and, talked, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you and I even talked about the fact that we both, the reason we're passionate about this subject is is we were both kind of victims of this flawed thinking and struggled with this when we were younger. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we look at it and we want to say, I've done something. Even how we package salvation to others, you know, and, uh, you know, I've seen many churches that at the end of the sermon, and I'm sure you have as well, the pastor will step down and he'll give the, the call to the congregation. If anybody would like to, to know Christ, walk the aisle, will they walk the aisle? And then they are told to recite, you know, the prayer, the sinner's prayer. And the dangerous part is after this prayer is recited, you know, many times a pastor will say, well, now we welcome this person to the family of God, deeming them saved. And we, we don't look at the other side of the coin. Um, as, uh, as my friend Chip Doster said, he's recently stumbled upon uh, the doctrines of grace and the glory of God and salvation. And uh, he, he is loving this. But, but the one thing that he said is we negate to look at the other side of the coin. And what he meant by this is, yes, we do make a decision for Jesus. But the question we should ask is, what was the catalyst of that decision? Why did I make that decision? What caused me to do that? Was it that I had something better in me than the sinner down the street did? That's to say human works play an element, that I did something. And interrupt me anytime you want, John, but but, no, I, look right at this as, but I look at this as well as other misnomers about salvation. You know, when we, when we say praying a certain thing or when we say to do a certain thing, we neglect to say that this is works, uh, that we're adding into it. Uh, not that God did something. What I'll tell people, I, I once had a man tell me, he said, you know, Pastor, um, I know that I decided to follow Jesus. Uh, despite whatever you say, I know that I made a decision. And my response to this man was, yes, you did make a decision, but the only reason you could make that decision is because God saved you in your seat first, regenerating your heart, giving you a love for him and his ways, and then you walked down the aisle and, and so forth. Um, so we've got to look at the other side of the coin and ask the question, why did I make that decision? And it goes back to the verse you read in Romans 8. Are we looking at Scripture? Was I called? What does it mean to be called? God does the calling, obviously, first. We don't. Even when it comes to the words of choosing, God's choosing, which we see all over the Old Testament and the New Testament, that it is God who chose Israel, God who chose the prophets, God chose the apostles, but when it comes to our salvation, we want to say, no, we, we chose that. We did that. I've often heard terms of predestination, and, and forgive me, I may be jumping the gun if I am. Just no, go, me. go right ahead. But, but when, in terms of predestination, people will read this verse many times, and they will try to describe it in a humanistic way. And, and it, I, I've heard it put like this. Well, Pastor, what it means by predestination is that God looked down the corridor of time and saw that a certain individual was going to choose him, so therefore God chose them. Well, that's a convoluted way of looking at salvation, and it wouldn't make any sense in a modern-day context. Let me give you a quick example of, of what I mean by that. Uh, if, if you were in the schoolyard when you were 10 years old, and you were captain of the, the, uh, the kickball team, and you had all the, the other children lined up in front of you, and you were to pick who was going to be on your team, no one would ever say, well, I choose Jimmy to be on my team because I saw that Jimmy was going to choose me, so I chose him. 
that doesn't even make sense. Who's doing the choosing, you know? Right. And in a, a biblical sense, God is doing the choosing. Uh, so again, the, these are all different ways of connecting to Romans chapter eight, and, and I fear that I've kind of gone off the rails with it. But no, no, but please, you know, you know, keep me straight. This is one of the some of the misnomers I see, the stumbling blocks I see to the doctrines of grace. Yeah. So for people who struggle with this, and boy, I've I can't say that I'm off the list of people who struggle to understand the intricacies of this. I think we all. I think there's some mysteries associated with this, but I've heard it explained that I had a pastor who, I think this was very helpful for me. He said, do we make choices? Yes. But is God entirely sovereign in salvation? Yes. Can my human brain reconcile those things fully? No. Can you just talk about that? Um, Because this word, what people go to when they hear this is, well, what about that word whosoever? What about this whosoever will may come? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, what, what, what about that? Isn't salvation something that is available to everyone? Right. Yes. John 3.16 is, is the verse that's mainly heralded as opposition to God's sovereignty. And it goes to the word whosoever. Well, we've got to ask what that word means. And, and it goes back to something that you had said before we went live on the podcast. Uh, you had mentioned that we must submit the Scripture in everything, that we must weigh Scripture against Scripture and not our own interpretation. And, so I, and I also the, threw in, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I said one of the lessons that's really important to learn is that Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. One, one won't contradict another, whether it's the oldest Scripture in Genesis or the newest in the New Testament. That's exactly right. John 3.16, uh, it uses the word whosoever, and that's absolutely true. There's nothing, like you said, in Scripture that is false. But we've got to ask the question, who are the whosoever? Does it mean every person that ever would walk the earth? Well, you've got to be careful there because that steers into universalism, which we know is a heresy. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but universalism being everyone who was ever born will be saved, will receive salvation. Right, Exactly. And, and we've got to weigh the book of John against the book of John. So when we read John 3.16, we've got to keep reading the book. You know, you don't stop there. It's, I think I used this analogy on a former episode with you, but when it's like ripping a, a scene out of the middle of a movie that you haven't seen the beginning or end of. You don't know what it's about, and you're liable to interpret it the way you want to. And the same is true of Scripture. If we don't weigh the whole context of Scripture, a book of the Bible, in light of the whole uh, then we're liable to misinterpret it. Um, for instance, uh, in John seventeen nine, Jesus talking to his disciples says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, I'm not praying for the, the whole world. Rather, I'm praying for those the Father has given me out of the world. So that kind of gives you some context about what Jesus is talking about here. He goes on in John chapter 6 to, to clarify the, the whosoever. And Jesus says, you know, in John chapter 6, no one can come to God the Father unless God draws them first. So we know right there, in order for somebody to come to God, to come to faith, they must be drawn by God the Father first, that we would not argue with that. Scripture says that. And then we would say, okay, is everyone drawn then? Well, Jesus answers that in John chapter 6 as well. He, he says, all that the Father gives me will come. He doesn't say they might come. He doesn't say that they'll hopefully come. Jesus emphatically says, 
all that the Father gives me will come, and nobody can come unless God draws him. Now, you put those two statements together. There's something very powerful there. Also, in, in the book of John, Jesus is talking as well, and I'm trying to remember the, the chapter. I believe it is it's chapter 1, actually, John one thirteen. Jesus is talking about salvation and what the children of God look like. And he says this, children that are born not of natural descent, nor of the human will or some interpretation, say the human decision or the husband's will, but born of God. So does our decision play a part in our salvation? Jesus would say, no, it doesn't. Your decision was prompted by God's movement in your life first. Yeah, so you you would go to, I, I just looked this up while you were talking, the book of Ephesians troubled me when I was trying to, and still does to some degree, frankly, in an effort to try to understand this doctrine because it, it references us, Paul references us in Ephesians 2, 5 as being dead in our trespasses. And so what you're talking about, well, I'll give you another one, uh, Colossians two thirteen. and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. You're, you're, what you're talking about is this quickening is the way I would call it, right? Yes. And so what do you say, though? So, so, so yes, I agree, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And yes, God is sovereign in salvation. God is not subject to us and our, our reasoning. Uh, we are subject to him and his reasoning and his transcendence and his eminence. And we can we walk through all of that. But what do you say to the person who says, how do I know whether I want to be one of the elect? I want to receive Christ. How do I know that whether or not I'm predestined to receive him, whether or not I'm one of the elect? What can you say that would be pastorally helpful to that person? Yes, there are many uh, great long answers I could give based on Scripture, but I love what Dr. Steve Lawson once said in response to this same question to a man who was asking, how do I know that I'm one of God's elect? And his response was basically back to this man. If you were not one of God's elect, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't have any desire to know God. You wouldn't have any desire to be obedient. You would bend the scriptures into a more humanistic way of looking at things to coddle your own sins. You would not bow the knee to Christ. You would not be brokenhearted over your sins. You would just want things your way and basically mold God into a golden calf. Because of be, because of being dead in our trespasses and sins. Yes. Right? And, and let me, if you don't mind, let me speak to that. That's another great point. Dead in our trespasses. You know, what does that mean? And I think we don't ask enough of Scripture. We'll read it like we're reading the Sunday newspaper sometimes and not stop to contemplate what these words or phrases actually mean. I'm, I'm, uh, when I'm guilty. Says, I'm guilty. Yes. Yep. Yes. And, and when, when Paul says we are dead in our sins, okay, what does that mean? How dead is dead? Well, we go back to the Bible and we let Scripture speak to this. And we must look at Scripture as a whole. In the book of Ezekiel, you'll remember the prophet was given the vision of a valley of dry bones. And the Lord spoke to Ezekiel as he's gazing upon these dry, dead bones. Uh, and by the way, when, when the Bible says the bones are dry, it, it, he could have just said there are a valley of bones, but dry bones implies that they're not just dead. They're dead, dead. <laughs> I mean, they've been dead. Yeah. And, and the Lord says to Ezekiel something interesting. He says to the prophet, Ezekiel, how will these bones live or how can they live? 
And Ezekiel's response was not, well, Lord, they, they just need to decide to follow you. Or, well, Lord Jesus, they just need to walk down the aisle or, or say this prayer and they'll receive life. Ezekiel's response to the Lord was, only you know, Lord. Ezekiel, who was the preacher, if you will, didn't have a clue. And so the Lord gives Ezekiel the answer to how these bones can live again, these dead bones. And he says, Ezekiel, prophesy or preach the word of God to the bones. And the Lord goes on to say, and I'll give them life. And so Ezekiel preaches the word of the Lord to the bones, and the bones have life. They come together and have life. Now, when the Apostle Paul says that we are spiritually dead, he's taking from the book of Ezekiel the very same picture of the, the sinner, the lost one, that he is incapable of doing anything good. Uh, as Jesus says uh, in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, think about that. Jesus said, apart from me, talking in a spiritual sense, you can't do anything. And I love what R.C. Sproul, again, I'll refer to him as well, he addressed the topic of free will, and, and he said, um, human, human beings do have free will. He said, Coke, Pepsi, Chevy, or Ford, all of these choices under the sun, we have free will. He said, but when it comes to matters of spiritual things, we're dead. We, we have no ability to do that without the sun first setting us free from sin. That's John chapter 8, where Jesus implicitly says, we're captive, we're slaves to sin, now, Jesus doesn't say, until you decide to get out of the chains. We can't. Jesus says, until God does something, until the Son sets you free. Yeah, that's right. And I'm just wondering, though, because I know I, I'm putting on the hat of the listener who probably isn't hearing this for the first time, but says, this God you're describing sounds cold and cruel. And yet I've learned that God is love. I know that that is his essence. He created love even, and, and he, is, he isn't just loving, he is love. And I, I believe that he's love. Are you saying that some people are born on this earth to be damned with no chance of salvation whatsoever? Well, we go back to scripture again, and we, we can't answer all of the finite questions of an infinite God. We know that God is love, and that's absolutely true. But even in our own vision of what love is, when we are to say, as you said, when we read Scripture and say, okay, if, if what Pastor Charlie and, and John are talking about uh, is truly God, then that's not loving. Well, we've got to remember, we're, we're swimming in a cesspool of sin. So even our own thinking about topics such as love are marred by our sinful flesh and what we think. So I, I would say, look at Scripture again and, and ask the question, what does the love of God merit? Now, we are transgressors against God. We deserve damnation. We deserve separation from God, okay? But if God is truly love and he were to be just, I mean, if he were to be fair, let's use that word, yeah. to give fairness, because the rebuttal to the sovereignty of God many times is, if God chooses some, elects some and not others, that's not Fair. Yeah, God is well, un God is unfair. God had some bias that we don't understand. Right, right. God God is unfair, and that's not a loving God. Well, let's that that just points out that we don't have a true understanding of how deep our sin nature is. Because what would actually be fair if we want to talk true fairness is that God let the whole human race go to hell. If God were were to save no one, 
and everyone went to hell, he would still be just and loving and right you know, for what I, he did. I think about that often, and I'll tell you what triggers me there, to use a modern expression. It is this. I'll hear people say, well, now, wait a minute, guys. I am a justice person. I believe in justice, and I believe God is a just God, and I don't believe in these doctrines because I believe God is a just God. Isn't what you just said the answer to that? If God were truly a just God without grace and mercy, then wouldn't we all be damned at birth? That's right. Uh, A better answer, I think, is to answer your former question about why is God doing this? God doesn't send anyone to hell. We're already going there. We're already on that track. He doesn't send anyone willingly to hell. We are already rebels in our flesh because of sin. We're already on that track. The very fact that God even saves one is grace. So in the, in that, we see that even the definition of grace is gutted of its meaning without the sovereignty of God. You can't understand what grace is. It's a Christianese, as I call it, word that we use in church and have no understanding of what it means. Grace is a gift that is undeserved. So the very depths of grace, knowing no one deserved to be saved, when God bestows salvation or election on some based on his love, because that's what Scripture says, because of the love of God, he does this. That's the true definition of grace, and we've missed that. Mm. We're just going to scratch the surface here today, and I want us to uh, maybe even uh, have multiple episodes where we, uh, we discuss these doctrines, but the thing that pops into my head that I think could be helpful to people is this notion of imputed sin, of, of being being born in sin. And you just kind of described the implications of that, but can you talk about that for a second? Uh, because of our father, Adam, the first Adam, we are, in fact, every person who's been born on this earth, other than Jesus Christ himself, have been born sinners right out of the gate. Can you just talk about that briefly? Yes. You know, it's a funny, I could tell you a, a funny story. My wife wouldn't think it's funny, but but when our kids were born, I can remember my daughter, uh, Haven, being born. And, you know, babies are precious. They're beautiful, uh, just ooing and eyeing over the creation of Especially God. a little yeah. girl, especially a little girl in, in a family of all boys. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, she's, she's totally coddled. But but looking at her, and I, we went into a, a baby store and, and looking at onesies and different things for her. She probably was a few months old. And I saw this onesie, and it said, I am the wretch the song speaks of. Talking about amazing grace, yep. how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yep. Well, well, the onesie said, I'm that wretch that the song speaks of. And I, I told my wife, I said, what a great witnessing opportunity to people, and of course, you know, I was shut down on that one. A, a theologically, <laughs> one. a theologically correct onesie. Yes, exactly. But but if you know, you think about this when we look at. It, let's use the example of a newborn. We think and we use terms like innocent and sweet and all of these things. Now we forget that because of the fall of Adam, we are depraved, wretched sinners from the moment we enter into this world, needing a savior. We're not born innocent. You don't learn. Uh, as I've heard some people say, we don't learn how to be sinful uh, from the world. You know, my, my children, uh, I love them. You know that I have five of them. We have a loud house. And uh, when our boys were little, from the time they could crawl, we would catch them at times biting the other one and, you know, pulling hair and all of these things. 
Well, they didn't learn to bite each other from watching me and their mother bite each other when we got upset. Yeah. I mean, that, that didn't happen in our house. Right. It's innate. It's yeah. innate. It's in them, this selfishness. So, so to answer your question, we, we don't even realize how sinful we really are. It's like a fish that's uh, swimming in a, a fish bowl of water. The fish doesn't realize it's wet because it's in the water all the time. And the same goes for us. We are swimming in sin. We don't even realize the depth of our sinfulness. So we don't realize the depth of our depravity is what you're really saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I have to, uh, in class, because we use block scheduling, I have to kind of distill everything into very concrete terms. And, and the way the way I explain it, we've got a, uh, in the Southeast, we've got a, a supermarket chain called Publix. And I tell students, if you don't believe, if you struggle with this doctrine of depravity, of, of being born in sin, go to Publix and watch the toddlers uh, to your, to your point, you know, they don't have to be taught to reach and grab things. And, and even, even when the mom or dad says, no, Tommy, stop doing that, that, that kind of fires them up even more. So that bad behavior is something that is innate in us. And, and it, that, that it's difficult when you really get in the theological weeds and try to explain imputed sin. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging doctrine to understand, I, I used to ask R.C. Sproul that question, and he kind of punt on exactly how the imputation happens, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, what, what the mechanism is for it. But nonetheless, we believe it to be true. Well, it's one of these things. And again, this is something that can be hard to look at. And if you, you have not grown up seeing and understanding and heard the doctrines of grace preached, it's hard to grasp because we have traditions in the way. But we must look at Scripture and what Scripture says, and I'll use another verse, Acts chapter 13, verse 48, and it says this, speaking of the Gentiles who were hearing the Word of God, it says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, think about that verse. Again, we've got to put our minds to this. How many believed on this day? The text says, as many as were appointed. It didn't say as many as who decided or as many as who came. It said, as many as who were appointed. Well, who's doing the appointing? We know God's doing the appointing. So how do you bend that out of joint and and put a humanistic spin on that? You know, we can try our best, but when you compare John chapter 6, when you compare the book of Acts, when you compare Romans chapter 9 specifically, when you compare the book of Ezekiel and other Old Testament texts, when you compare Ephesians and put them all together, it gives us this picture of a God who is fully sovereign even over salvation. And the only way that you can miss that is if you're ripping Scripture out of joint and not judging the sum in in light of the whole total of Scripture. Well, you know, as you were talking, I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's important for us to pivot slightly, although I think these, these topics are very related, and, and talk for a minute about God's righteousness and holiness. Because you know, and when I say righteousness, I try to stick to the, the New Testament biblical definition, which is God's rightness. His, it's often translated justification in the New Testament, his moral rightness. And then when I say holiness, I'm talking about his, his being holy. There's an implication of purity there, but, but primarily it's uh, the words set apart. And, and then maybe a third one is, is, you know, his power or his actual you know, omniscience, omnipotence and his character don't you think we often, because we're so finite, we struggle with these concepts, we struggle with concepts like righteousness, holiness, even sovereignty? 
John, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, holiness is a huge part of it. And all of these doctrines are interconnected and intertwined together. It's a misunderstanding of even the holiness of God. If we're to say that God is not fully sovereign and, and part of salvation depends on us in some way, uh, we don't even understand the holiness of God that that without God, a God who is so holy and so set apart, as Habakkuk says, that he can have no part with sin. You know, think about that. God, God is not going to be tarnished with having any part of sin. So how is it that we can be reconciled to a God that is that holy, that can have no part with sinners? Well, it comes into the gospel, the beautiful gospel that Christ came, the Son of God, died in our place for our sin, taking upon himself our sin and imputing his righteousness to us, his perfect spotless record to us, that when God would see the the saint in heaven standing before him, and this is very, very key, that that saint would not be declared righteous because of anything that he had done. God is not going to say, well, because you chose me or decided to follow me or said the sinner's prayer or whatever it is, because you did these things, you are you are one of my children. Nothing that we do is going to be credited to us. It's going to be credited to Christ. And when we stand before Jesus, when we stand before a holy God, he's going to say, you are justified, not because of anything that you have done, but because of the perfect spotless blood of my son, the holy blood of my son that covers all of your sin. So so there's nothing worthy in us to merit salvation, to be joined with a holy God. Even in that, you know, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, you know, we, we know the angels cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The only attribute of God mentioned three times in a row in Isaiah, you know, you, you think about who Isaiah was. He was a preacher. He was a righteous man, a prophet, uh, heralding the word of God. And in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah gets the vision of a holy God, this righteous man, this preacher guy, falls before the Lord and basically wants to die, saying, I am not worthy. I'm a man of unclean lips, because he saw the holiness of God. Isaiah Mm -hmm. didn't stand before the Lord and say, hey, Lord, you are so holy, and I'm one of your guys. I'm preaching your word. Aren't you proud that I'm not like the other heathens? No, Isaiah, who was righteous, basically compared himself with the other heathens and said, I'm just no good. I'm not any better than the man down the road who is not doing anything in your name. I deserve to die. We don't have that same fear of God anymore because, and I'm going to connect it back to the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God, we've lost sight of who God is. We've forgotten who he is and all of his attributes together. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. And I'm wondering, I got to tell you this, and I I never want to be an impediment to a person's ego, but, but if ever I could puff up your ego, it would be to show you the response that the previous two episodes that you were on have gotten compared to the others, even in number of listeners, actual feedback, calls from friends. I had a friend who said, hey, why in the world don't you live in Georgia and go to that church where, where Charlie is, is, is the pastor? And I, I, I said back to him, you know, that's an excellent question, and I just might do that someday. But I got such a positive feedback and I'm thinking of those people who, who have, are listening to this and they remember your story from a couple of episodes ago and you were a missionary. And I can imagine people hearing this and saying, well, why would anybody, if everything you're saying is true, why do you, Charlie Parrish, Pastor Charlie Parrish, why do you talk about the gospel from the pulpit 
every Sunday. Why did you yeah. give your dedicate your life to the, the country of Panama? Why'd you go down there? And why should anybody evangelize? Uh, that's a common response to these doctrines is, well, then why do we do all that? Uh, that's a great question. And, and that's very humbling. And, and I want to flip that question on its head. I've heard it put like this many times. If that's true, if God is sovereign, even over salvation, and he knows who is going to be saved, and he's already called and drawn his elect and who are going to be his, then why evangelize? Why pray? Why do any of these things? Right. Why should we pray for the lost if God is sovereign and he's going to do what he will anyway? That's it. And I want to I flip that question on its head, I, and I want to turn the question back to the one who does not believe in God's sovereignty. If God is not sovereign, if you don't believe that God is sovereign in salvation and he can bring the spiritually dead to new life, then why do you pray? Because in your estimation of who God is, when you pray for, say, your family member to be saved, God saved my, my father or my grandfather or mother or whoever it is, God saved my family member, your response from a God who is not sovereign is going to be, well, it's up to them. I can't do anything. They've got to make that decision. They have to do something because God is, is hands off in salvation. But see, when I pray and I evangelize, I have the confidence, not in myself, but that God is going to do what he will. And he has the power to save and bring the spiritually dead to life. Charles Spurgeon once said something beautiful. He said, we don't know who the elect of God are. He said, we have no idea who they are. He said, it would be so easy if we could pull up their, their shirt tails and see a yellow mark down their back to identify the elect. But that's not so. And so Spurgeon went on to say, because we don't know who the elect are, our job is not to, to identify the elect. We're called to preach the gospel to every person in this world with the confidence knowing when we speak the word of God, somebody's coming out saved not because of our convincing words or anything that we've done, but because there's power in the Word of God. Like we saw in the book of Ezekiel, that God's Word, when it is heard, brings the spiritually dead to life. So here's my thing. Why wouldn't why wouldn't we want to evangelize? Why wouldn't we want to go on mission and preach the gospel? Because there's confidence in that. You see, without the sovereignty of God, we have no confidence in anything. We don't know if we're going to, to mess up the message or or fumble over our words or, or whatever mm. it is. But with a sovereign God, I have confidence that as long as I read his word, his will is going to be accomplished and those who are called are going to be saved. My, my thing is, why wouldn't we want to do that? I, I compare it with this. I use a little analogy. When I was uh, eight years old, seven years old, I remember my father who worked in advertising would take me to his office with him to go to work with him. And while I was there with him, he would always give me little things to do. He would let me take out the trash or he would let me bring him papers off the copier. And I thought that was such a big deal. I always loved helping my dad and going to work with him. Now, the question is, did my dad need me to do those things? Well, of course not. He could have done that by himself. But I was simply a part of my dad's quote-unquote mission, and he was allowing me to play a part. In the same way, we're going to work with our Heavenly Father, who's already accomplished things. Why wouldn't we want to be a part of that in His will? He's doing the work, but we're a part of that. We're, we're His agents, uh, and that's such a huge privilege to the believer. Amen. That's exactly right. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about creation, Charlie, and I'm thinking about 
the fact that I wonder if you could just talk about this for a second. I think we might have touched on this previously at another episode in another episode, but God, when he created us, didn't need us to fill a gap that he had a need, an unmet need that he had. And so, and there's, there's so much here and we've got limited time, but this, this notion of subduing the earth, this notion of our working and the implications of the fall come to mind. God didn't need us, but he blesses us with making us a part of his work on this earth. Can you talk about that just for a minute? I actually, uh, years ago at a different church, I, I actually got a little bit of pushback and uh, had some confrontation over somebody coming up to me when I made the statement that God doesn't need us. Uh, I had a man come up to me and say, God absolutely needs us. Well, let me tell you, uh, to do- let me interrupt you real fast and just tell you what I meant by that, because I, I do want to be clear to the listener. I know you know what I meant by that. I meant that he didn't have this hole in him, this missing piece that we complete. That, right. That's really what I meant by that. And, and yes, you're exactly right. We don't complete God in any way. And and I want to push a little bit further maybe than you wanted to go. God doesn't need us. It's not like God said, I'm going to create mankind because without them, my plans of, of glorifying the Son and glorifying the Trinity are not going to be accomplished. God was fully and completely satisfied before the beginning of the ages in himself, in the Holy Trinity. There was nothing lacking in the Trinity. God didn't need us for anything. God didn't need us for fellowship. He was perfectly content. God created because of love and to display his glory through his attributes and his creation. Now, yes, God loves his creation, but let us not combine the love of God with the need of God. We don't fulfill any kind of need that God has. God doesn't need anything. Uh, God created out of love and to glorify the Son. Even in the question, God, or, or the statement, God needs us, we place ourselves at the center of creation and the center of God's plan that, that we're the apple of the mm-hmm. eye of God. Now, the Son is the apple of the eye of God. Christ yeah. is. He receives all the glory, not us. So, so that's just a spin on looking at things in the wrong way. We begin to worship man, albeit we don't even realize it. We place ourselves at times in the center of the message of the gospel to say that God needed us or, or God desired to save me because I'm so precious and, you know, so ooey-gooey to God. It had nothing. We were depraved sinners to God. If we want to say who we really are, uh, you know, I've, I've heard it preached by, by prosperity preachers that, that we are so precious to God that he just had to have us. Mm. And so that's why he sent his son, because he had to have us. I believe there's even uh, some Christian songs on the radio, popular songs that, speak of the need of God just having to have us because he loved us so much. He didn't have to have us. We were depraved, undeserving sinners uh, in God's eyes, yet that's grace that he saved us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves. And and maybe I, am I answering your question in the yep, right way? Yep, yep, that's perfect. That's exactly what I was getting at. I'm wondering if you could just talk about this for a second, because I think a theme here. And, you know, this is hard to talk about on a podcast uh, uh, thoroughly, but this this notion of our purpose being to glorify God is so important. And I think we miss that. I mean, in my flesh, I think my purpose is to glorify me. Mm. And I, I see myself sometimes as the center of the universe, <laughs> in a mm, sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, you hear this talk 
uh, from pre- you mentioned the prosperity gospel, and this is where my mind went. Can you talk about that just briefly? The our purpose as believers, as Christians, as people who who know that we are redeemed is to bring glory to God. There are people who probably think that sounds arrogant of God, to, but but it is because of His character, isn't it? Right, right. It's because of who God is. And I believe John Piper explained that better than anything. And, and he was quoting C.S. Lewis, in fact. But in Lewis's testimony, he claimed that before coming to Christ and bowing the knee before Christ, he thought that God was arrogant because of all the claims and all the calls in Scripture to glorify him, glorify him. And C.S. Lewis said that, that he said, I could never worship a God that arrogant and, and centered on himself. But Lewis went on to say in his salvation— that the more he came to know God, he saw that we find, and as Piper says the same thing, Piper's written many books on this, but we find our greatest joy as human beings in glorifying God. We were wired to find this ultimate soul-satisfying joy that nothing can compare to on the face of the earth in glorifying God. The problem is we seek in our flesh to glorify the wrong things. That's we, right. We seek to glorify self. And, and whatever it is, whether it's a relationship or a football team or, or whatever our, our passion is apart from Christ, these passions will eventually leave you high and dry or, or rather low, low and dry. But glorifying God, when God says glorify me, he's not pounding his chest and saying, I'm selfish, please glorify me. No, God is, is saying, as Piper said, God is leading us into the greatest joy, a supernatural joy ever imaginable by leading us to glorify him. So it's actually, it's a beautiful thing that that we miss so many times uh, looking at it as God is being pious or or all about himself, basically, is what I'm saying. When, When God is saying, no, 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 I'm leading you into something greater. Yeah, exactly. And let, let's just say that, and I agree with every word you just said, and let's just say that there's a maybe a student of philosophy somewhere who says, you know, I can't reconcile all of this. I don't disagree with what you guys are talking about in this episode. I, I know those things are in scripture, but it, it there are some mysteries and it feels like, so, so to imagine somebody who, you know, has an IQ of 140 and, and they've thought this through and they, and they say, you know what, there's some connective tissue that I'm missing. What do you say to them? Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that that the revealed things, that is the scriptures, are for us. There's truth in scripture. We can know the revealed things, but Deuteronomy 29, 29 goes on to say, but the secret things belong to the Lord. So there are mysteries of God that that the mind of man will never comprehend or ever wrap our mind around. Mm -hmm. Why does God elect? Why does God choose some over others? I don't have all those answers. And I would fear the man that says that he does, because the mind of God is a mystery. But we know this, and we have confidence in this, that God's ways are good, God's ways are holy, and God's ways are ultimately loving. And and again, I'm going to refer, I've, I've said his names many times already, but R.C. Sproul, I remember hearing a sermon from him where he said that when, when the saint stands in heaven, even his loved ones, the ones that he loved on earth, who are suffering, departed eternally in hell, he said, you will be able as a saint, looking upon a holy God, to look at the loved one in hell and say, God was right, God was loving, 
God was just in this action. Now, now we can't wrap our mind around that here on this side of heaven. But Sproul's point was, in light of a holy God, when we see the holiness of God as Isaiah saw it in Isaiah chapter 6, everything else that we thought will be put to shame, and we will say God's justice, God's ways, God's election is right, and, and more than that, the grace of God is so much bigger than I ever thought imaginable on the face of the earth. Mm, that's right. You know, I, I, I thought about Paul Washer. We've mentioned a lot of a lot of uh, amazing teachers in this episode, and I like the way Paul Washer says this. He says it often. He says something like, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't fully understand this doctrine, but I believe it to be true nonetheless because it's what Scripture teaches. And that's where we have to land, isn't it? It is. And, and, you know, like you just said, and and like Paul Washer said, in our human flesh, we are going to read things in the Bible that offend even the religious, even those who may have bowed the knee to Christ. But ultimately, it's an error to bend those scriptures to make ourselves more comfortable uh, because we have to submit to scripture. And I'll say this. I, I think one of the reasons that these doctrines of grace, predestination, election, these these doctrines are, are so misunderstood is because they're not preached. And the reason they're not preached is because they've been marred by, by different words with isms on the end, you know, Calvinism or, or reformed. And, and, oh and I just want to, well, yeah. I, you know, briefly, I may have uh, unfortunately turned off a listener by, by even mentioning these things, but let <laughs> me explain here. Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. If you look back at it, the term Calvinism came many years after he had already passed away. He was somebody who just taught the scriptures. And, you know, he wasn't, I I say this many times, Calvin would have rolled over in his grave if he thought people were calling themselves by his name. Spurgeon said this, uh, Spurgeon said there's a term called Calvinism that his point was basically as a turnoff to people. But he said, honestly, it's just the Bible. He said it's just what yeah. we're seeing in Scripture. Um, Calvinism and Reformed theology, these are words that speak more to church history than anything else. Right. So it's best not to use these words. And I think the reason some of these doctrines of grace are avoided is because of the stigma uh, of words we see in church history, such as Calvinism or, or Reformed theology. Let's not use those words. Okay. Yeah. Again, let's use the Bible. Yep. Okay. Paul didn't didn't Paul wasn't a Paulinist or anything like that. Right. He was preaching the scriptures. Right. You know. So I, I think I, I we've said lost. To a, I said to a friend one time, I said, I said, you know, I, I actually think you're more Calvinistic than Calvin. <laughs> you know, to to your point. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I'm wondering no. I'm wondering if we could if we could close this out with this. And I, I man, I know we're we're scratching the surface and the the detail oriented deep dive in me wants to just go for four hours here. But I'm wondering if, if you could talk about this, because you mentioned the prosperity gospel earlier, and I, I, I don't really want to close with a detailed discussion of the prosperity gospel. But the, the thing about the prosperity gospel that just jumps out at me when I, when I watch things like the American gospel film, or I, I, don't, I don't know a lot of prosperity gospel folks personally, but when I hear that you're responsible for your faith and you're responsible for growing your faith. And if you have enough faith, the following things will happen to you, health, wealth, prosperity, all those things. And if you write a bigger check to the church and, you know, there's that that guy, uh, boy, what's his name? Robert Morris in Texas, who's got this sermon that where I think we might have mentioned him previously. He, he talks about grow your faith and, and give big bucks to the church and, and God will bless you richly. 
all of that puts tremendous pressure. That prosperity gospel, to me, creates an anxious church, an anxious body. Because if I believe that if I drum up enough faith on my own, God blesses me, that that makes me John-dependent rather than resting in the finished work of Christ. So I'm just wondering, can you talk about, just for a few minutes, the source of our faith? Where does our faith, say somebody's out there listening to this and say, you know what? I want to grow my faith. I want to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? You know, the, the scriptures speak widely to this. Uh, Ephesians 2, chapter chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Uh, when Peter, you, you remember Peter and Jesus asking uh, Peter, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus didn't pat Peter on the back and say, you did it. You got it right, gold star for you, Peter. No, he took any boasting away from Peter, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, yeah, you got the answer right, but the only reason you got it right is because God the Father gave you the answer. God, mm-hmm. God put it in your heart to know. So to go to your question, uh, well, true faith, the Scripture says, true belief, true understanding of who God is comes from God and God alone. Uh, we can't scratch that itch. We can't get there from here in our flesh because our flesh is opposed to Christ and God and his knowledge. And more than that, as we've already covered, we're spiritually dead and dead things can't do anything. <laughs> it's not uh, the old analogy of, you know, you hear salvation talked of in this way. If uh, we were drowning in a sea and if we would only reach our hand up to Jesus, he would reach down and pull us out of drowning. Uh, well, well, a more accurate picture is we're the dead, dry bones at the bottom of the sea mm. uh, with no faith, with nothing. And God reaches down, makes them new, brings them to life, as in the book of Ezekiel, and, and makes a new creation out of nothing. Uh, yeah. So faith comes through that. The prosperity gospel doesn't, uh, it, it convolutes the message of the entire Bible by putting you know, the, the emphasis on us. And to say, as you were saying before, in the prosperity gospel message, if you would only give more, if you would only do more or, or have more faith, then God would bless you. All right, well, well, let's say that that was the case, and that's the message. What happens if you believe that, that if I give more, that if I do more, that if I have more faith, then God's going to give me my best life now? What happens when cancer comes? What happens when death happens? What happens when job loss occurs? Well, you're going to listen to the message that you had heard and see the money and, and the tithes that you had given and say one of two things, God is a liar or God doesn't exist. So that message is going to actually detract and push people away from the one true living God. Whereas the message of the gospel all throughout the Bible and especially Paul's epistles is regardless of suffering, regardless of hard times, which will come for the believer, Christ is sufficient in all things. Not that you'll have your best life now, but that God will get you through anything through faith in Christ. The Bible never says, says that God will not give you more than you can handle. The Bible teaches that God will never give us more than Christ can handle. Mm, amen. That's beautiful. And, you know, you have surveyed scripture in this conversation, very, very comfortably referenced a lot of scripture. And so what I would add to that person who 
who is wanting to grow is go to scripture, no scripture. It is the knowledge God uses scripture and prayer. And, and this is another detailed conversation we can have another time, but as his means of grace, as his, as his tools to equip us um, yes. in the faith, not this thing that we muster up. We wonder why people struggle with wanting to have control. When, when we teach that you must have control, you're responsible for everything that happens to you. God is punishing you when those things you just ran through happen to you. Well, then of course we're going to think, of course we're going to be depressed and anxious. And, and instead of resting in Christ and his finished work, and isn't that where we should leave it? Christ and his finished Absolutely. work. I'll, I'll leave it with this. And I think you're exactly right. The apostle Paul, when, when he preached to, to the Berean Jews, he said they were more commendable than any other Jew, not because they believed at face value, but because whatever Paul said, they were searching the scriptures to see if it was true. And, and that's my call to everyone who, mm. who is in a church, who listens to this podcast. Don't take our word for it. Don't, don't take me at face value because I'm, I'm just as simple and flawed as anyone. Search the scriptures to see if what I am saying is true. Search God's word, not the word of man, but the word of God. Amen. We're going to leave it at that. Charlie, thank you for being here again. Your work is so valuable, and I, I appreciate your friendship and your good work here. And I know I know we're going to leave this conversation feeling like we just scratched the surface. And I'll add this, uh, just in closing, if we, if we did kind of pique your interest or maybe made you angry, don't hesitate to go to uh, John at John Warren Media dot com to send an email or go to our website johnwarrenmedia.com send a comment on the comment form i'll be happy to uh, pass the difficult questions along to uh, our pastor here pastor charlie Parrish, and uh, i'll take the easy ones can we do that you good with that absolutely absolutely <laughs> absolutely anytime all right I, I appreciate that all right folks if you would uh, please Go to uh, johnwarrenmedia.com for more information about our work here. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. It is truly an honor to have my guest, Pastor Charlie Parrish, with us. And we look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.